Welcome to the Beltline Church of Christ podcast. We're so glad you found us. Please take a second and hit the subscribe button so that you can be notified of these weekly podcasts. Most of all, we hope this podcast will help you take your next step with Jesus. If you want to know more about us, you can visit us at www.beltlinechurchofchrist.org. Here's today's lesson. This is a day I've been looking forward to for quite some time as we begin our new journey through the Gospels with an in-depth look at the life of Jesus Christ, the most influential life in the history of mankind. And we're going to begin that journey today. And this, this series is going to carry us through the next several months. And I don't know if you have caught this already, but I'm really, really excited about this. And I am hoping and I am praying that you will walk with us through all of it and that you will encourage other people to walk with us as we embark on this great, great study. And I want to start this morning in what may seem like a strange place, but stay with me and we'll connect some dots as we go along. And so open your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel 16. Uh, that's where I want to get started here in just a second. And, I, and again, I'll share why we're going to start there in just a moment, but for now... Uh, let's return to this moment in history when David is anointed king of Israel. Now, if you know your history, uh, you know that from Abraham to Samuel, the Israelites had no king, not a physical one anyway. God was their king, right? He was the one who fought their battles. He was the one who protected. He was the one who provided for his people. But the people rejected God as their king, and they wanted a king they could see. This was Israel's greatest mistake ever. This was Israel's greatest mistake. They wanted to be like everyone else. The problem was they weren't like everyone else, right? They weren't. They were God's holy nation. They were his special chosen people. But God honored their request and told Samuel, they haven't rejected you from being king. They have rejected me. And so they gave them a king. Enter a man named Saul. Now Saul looked apart. He stood head and shoulders above everyone else, but he did not have the heart that God was after. And soon after taking the throne and becoming the first king of Israel, it becomes clear that Saul is not God's man. Poor choice after poor choice after poor choice leads God to take the kingdom from him and give it to another. And that's what leads us to 1 Samuel chapter 16. God tells Samuel to go and appoint a new king. And he leads Samuel to the house of Jesse of the tribe of Judah. And Jesse has seven sons. And although the oldest, a young man named Eliab, certainly looks the part, he looks presidential, if you will, but God rejected him. Anyway, he has seven sons. Eliab looks the part, but God did not choose him. In fact, this is the passage of Scripture where we find out that uh, God doesn't see the way that we look. He doesn't look the way that we look. He he looks at the heart while we may look at the outward appearance. And so seven sons then passed before Jesse, before Samuel. And one after another after another, God says, nope, that's not him. Nope, that's not him. Nope, that's not him. Until finally it gets a little awkward. <laughs> and Samuel says, okay, do you have any other kids? <laughs> and in verse 11, here's what we read. Then Samuel said, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. 
Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought men. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. No, verse 12. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. David comes in from keeping the sheep and he's anointed the king of Israel. Now keep that story in mind and let's go together to Luke chapter 2. And I will connect the dots here in just a second. But I want to read a fairly lengthy section of scripture that Alan did such a great job alluding to earlier. And I want to just mention it here as we read in verses 1 through 20. All right, let's let's read together. And I know you've probably read these words before, but but let's read them again with new eyes this morning. And if you brought a Bible or a phone, I hope that you won't just listen, but that you'll actually put your eyes on this text with us this morning. And so here we go. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to register, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in that same region, there were shepherds out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you great news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and all they had heard. Our dog, Mo, turned five a couple weeks ago. And you might be wondering, what in the world does that have to do anything? But hopefully we'll, we'll make it make sense here in just a second. He's a, he's a great dog. We, we, we love Mo. He's named after our favorite fast food restaurant that's over there by Target. Uh, have you ever have you ever had a dog and you tried to point something out to the dog and they focused on your finger rather than that thing that you're trying to point out? Is that a, uh, shake your head? Okay, you probably had that happen, right? But where our dog, when we throw the ball, especially in the summertime when the shadows are long, he'll chase the shadow rather than the ball. He's not the sharpest tool in the shed, but he's perfect for our family. And I think this is what happens though when we come to this section of scripture. I think this is exactly what happens. Many people make the mistake that when we read about the Christmas story here in Luke's gospel, we focus in on the finger rather than what it's pointing to. We focus in on the manger 
We focus in on the Christmas crib. We focus in on the most famous animal feeding trough in all of history, right? It shows up on Christmas cards, and we also know about the animals too, the oxen, the donkey, the sheep. They all find their way into nativity scenes and Christmas cards, even though Luke mentions none of them here in Luke 2, but that's another story for another time. But let's be clear about where Jesus' earthly parent parents are lodging, right? Tradition has them knocking at an inn door. They're knocking at a Motel 6. Do you have any vacancy? Nope, sorry, there's a barn out back. That's not exactly what's going on here. That word inn in the traditional translations has several meanings, and it's likely they were, in fact, on the ground floor of a house where people normally stayed upstairs. And the ground floor would be used for animals, hence the manger, the feeding trough, which came in very, very handy for the baby Jesus. Now, here's my point. To concentrate on the manger and to forget why it was mentioned in the first place is like the dog looking at your finger rather than the object you're pointing to. It's like chasing the shadow rather than the ball. And so why is this manger here? Why is it mentioned three times in this section of Scripture? And the answer is very, very simple, but very, very important. The feeding trough was assigned to the shepherd. The feeding trough was assigned. It told them which baby they were looking for. And it showed them that the angel knew what he was talking about. To be sure, now it's, a, it's another wonderful human touch to this story, to think of this young mother finding this, this animal feeding trough ready at hand as a bed for her newborn son. Now there is no doubt many a lesson and sermon waiting to be preached about how God came down into the mess and muck of our real life world. But the reason that Luke has mentioned it three times is because it's giving shepherds the news and it's giving them their instruction. This is significant because it was the shepherds who were told who this child was. This child was the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord. And the manger isn't important in and of itself. It is a sign point, sign point, post. It is a pointing finger to the identity of the baby boy who's lying in it. Now, here's where we can connect some dots to what we began with in 1 Samuel 16. The shepherds are summoned in from the fields, just like David, the shepherd boy, was brought in from the fields to be anointed king. And here in David's city, David's ancestors, one, if you look at the genealogies of Matthew 1 and Luke 3, has rights to David's throne. He has arrived. The king has arrived. And God wants us to connect the dots. He wants us to understand who is in this feeding trough. And not only that, these shepherds are made aware of the news so that Mary and Joseph, hearing it from this very unexpected source, would have all the confirmation they needed of what up until now had only been their little secret between them and God. Now, make no doubt about it as well. When these shepherds heard that there was a Savior and a Messiah and a Lord who had been born, they knew what that meant. In case we need reminding, though, Luke has introduced us this story in Luke chapter 2 by telling us about Augustus Caesar. Augustus Caesar, way off in Rome, at the height of his power. Let me give you a little bit of history because I like history. Augustus was the adopted son of Julius Caesar, and he became the sole ruler of the Roman world after a bloody civil war in which he kind of took care of anyone who had claims to the father's throne. 
And the last person to be destroyed was the famous Mark Antony, who committed suicide not long after his defeat in the Battle of Actium in 31 B.C. Augustus turned the great Roman Republic into this incredible empire with himself as the head. He proclaimed that he brought justice and peace to the whole world. And he declared that his adopted father was divine and Augustus called himself a son of God. Augustus was called the savior of the world. It was called, he was called its king and lord and he was worshipped by many as a god. So stay with me. Meanwhile, far away on this same eastern frontier, boy was born who within a generation would be hailed the son of God, who, whose followers would speak of him as the Savior and Lord, whose arrival, they thought, had brought true justice and true peace to the world. Jesus never stood before a Roman emperor, but at the climax of Luke's gospel, he stood before Rome's representative, a man named Pontius Pilate. And Luke certainly has that scene in mind as he writes us the beginnings of Jesus here. But the point that's being made is simply this. The birth of this little boy is the beginning of a confrontation between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. This is the point that Luke is trying to make. This is the beginning of a battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. Augustus had never heard of Jesus of Nazareth. But within a century or so, his successors in Rome had not only heard of him, they were taking steps to obliterate his followers. And with just, within just over three centuries, the emperor himself would become a Christ follower. You see, when you see that manger on a card or you see that nativity scene in a front, front yard, don't stop at the crib. Look at what it's pointing to, and it's pointing to some explosive truths. Truths that the baby lying in that manger there is already being spoken of as the true king of the world. And John explains this to us even greater in John chapter 1 and verse 14 when he says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. And John's words make the most extraordinary claims. The claim that John makes is simply this. The God of the universe, the creator of the entire world, wrapped himself in human flesh. God became a man. And this is what John 1, verse 1 through 3 is all about, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and without him nothing was made that was made. The creator of the world, though, puts on human flesh and dwells among us, and we get to behold his glory. Amazing. Now, for those of you who are regulars here, this is something you have heard over and over and over again. To those who have never heard this, this is an outrageous claim. It is an outrageous claim. In fact, this has been the greatest uh, point of contention between, between Christianity and virtually every other religion out there. And it's not hard to see why. How can an eternal God squeeze himself into such a small package? Now, for us as believers, the... This isn't a big deal. We recognize that there is nothing stopping God from limiting himself in this way if he so desires. But for others, it is unthinkable that God would reduce himself to a human being. 
So for thousands and thousands of years, a debate has raged around the identity of this baby in the manger. And the question is this, is Jesus really God? And it's an important question. I, I want to turn the question just a bit, though. And I want to ask it this way. Is God Jesus? And with that question, I'm asking whether Jesus is a better representation of God than anything our own imaginations could come up with on our own. Because just a few verses later in John chapter 1, this time verse 18, the text says, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Our best chance of knowing God is this with the Father in eternity past. I always love it when people say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God in the flesh. People just made that up centuries after. That's crazy. Look at the text. Over and over, Jesus is calling himself something different. He claimed to exist with the Father in eternity past, John 17, 5. Jesus claimed to be the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. A, 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 a title that was limited and reserved for God alone. Jesus claimed to be the judge of all people in Matthew 25. Jesus claimed the ability to forgive sins. This was a, 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 an act that was reserved, again, for God alone. And while all the religious leaders plotted to kill Jesus, do you know why they did? Because he called himself the Son of God. He made God his own Father. He made himself equal with God. And as we walk through the life of Christ over the next several months, you're going to see how the religious leaders wanted Jesus dead because he claimed not only to be the king of the universe, but he claimed to be God in the flesh. So again, when you see that manger on a card in the front yard, on a mantle in somebody's house, don't Look at what it's pointing. And just because we can, I want to share with you a couple more passages. Acts chapter 4, verse 12 reminds us that there is salvation in no one else because there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved other than Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus 1 John chapter 5, verse 11 and 12, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. You see, the great claim of Jesus Christ is a claim no one else has ever made. He claimed to be absolutely unique. He claimed to be God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. And around the world this week, millions will pause and celebrate the birth of Jesus, and they will have no clue what they are celebrating. They will stop at the manger. They will consider the animals. They will say that Jesus is a good guy. They will say he's a great example. But that is not the point of this story. Jesus is God in the flesh. Come to live with us. The King has arrived. The kingdom has come. You have heard me say this before. You'll hear me say it again. All other religions in the entire world are, are man's attempts to reach up to God. But it is Christianity and Christianity alone that is God's attempt to reach down to us. And he does that in and through himself. Jesus Christ. At least 50 times in the New Testament, Jesus is called the Son of God. And two of those times, he is called that by God himself. He claimed to have an identity that was absolutely unique. I love what C.S. Lewis said. He said, a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make a choice. 
Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. And you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Later in Jesus' life, he's going to say to his disciples, who, who do men say that I am? And the point of the question is you cannot be a follower of Jesus and be unsure about the answer to that question. Who do you say that I am? Peter says you're the Christ, son of the living God. Jesus says that's right. And based on that truth, I am the Christ, the son of the living God. I'm going to build my church in the gates of hell. And then as as Jesus uh, is resurrected from the dead and ascends back to the Father, you start to hear this teaching become regular. In Acts chapter 8, Philip runs to a chariot. He meets an Ethiopian guy who is studying from the prophet Isaiah, and he teaches him about Jesus from Isaiah. And as they're going, they see some water, and they say, what's keeping me from being baptized? He says, what? You believe. Believe what? Who Jesus is. You can. They stop getting the water and... The gospel goes to Ethiopia. Paul, after persecuting the church for years, killing Christians and giving his approval to all of it, after his Damascus experience in Acts chapter 9, immediately, at once, he begins, according to Acts chapter 9 and verse 20, to teach something that Jesus is the Son of God. All the prophecies of the Old Testament find their fulfillment in Jesus, and His resurrection from the dead seals the deal that this is not just an irregular, ordinary guy. This is the Son of God. Romans chapter 1, verse 4. Jesus is declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. There is no religion that stands or falls on the identity of its founder like Christianity. If they find the bones of Moses, does that destroy the Jewish faith? Does knowing where Joseph Smith is buried destroy Mormonism? Does visiting the tomb of Muhammad destroy Islam? But if they ever find a tomb and can prove that the bones inside are a carpenter from Nazareth named Jesus, then Christianity completely falls apart. He's either the Son of God or we are wasting our time, but I believe that Jesus is the very best God has to offer. First John chapter 4, verse 9, God showed us how much He loved us by sending His one and only Son into the world so that we might have eternal life through Him. This is real love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. God came near. He came to the very world He created. So as we begin this journey this morning, I want to leave no doubt about one thing. That's who it is that's in this manger. There is only one name that's able to save. And here's the thing about that name. It's not narrow. It's not intolerant. The name of Jesus is open to everyone. 1 John chapter 4, verse 14, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be Savior of what? The world. 
behavior of the world. But as we will see as we continue through this series of lessons, Jesus did not just come to die. He is not just Savior. He did not come just to bring salvation. That's the greatest thing that he did. But he came to be king. He came to call you and to call me to allegiance to him. He calls you and he calls me to a faithful, obedient faith. And the real question you need to wrestle with with this Christmas is simply this. Who, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say he is? If you believe without a shadow of a doubt that he is the Son of God, God in the flesh, the creator of the world, limiting himself into the form of a man, then you cannot remain the same. You can't. That has to transform everything that you do, everything that you say, everything that you are. Because he's either the Son of God or we're wasting our time. There is no more important question for us to answer than who is it in this manger? Who is it in this manger? And I've made up my mind. And we're about to sing my answer. And I hope that this is your answer too. And if it's not, then I think you can make some changes starting with that truth right now. You've got to come to believe who Jesus is. Wrestle with the evidence. Wrestle with all of it. Don't just take my word for it. Do the hard work that's required when Jesus makes the extraordinary claim that he makes that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Thanks again for listening. If you are in North Alabama, we would love to have you visit and worship with us. Also, if this lesson blessed you today, don't forget to hit the share button and share this message with someone else. Hope you will join us again next week. As we close, here is our prayer for you. I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in Him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Have a great week.